Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome. Just a couple of uh, housekeeping-y things. Um, if you're uh, next to an empty seat and, uh, it, and you're sort of on the end of a row, uh, if you wouldn't mind sort of moving one across so that any latecomers can um, not disturb you or uh, walk across the projector or something. And the other thing I'd love to ask is if um, you could all remember to switch off or switch to silent or whatever it is, uh, your mobile phones. That would be wonderful. Um, welcome, everybody, and uh, it's a great delight to see you all here. It's a beautiful Sydney day. It's fantastic to see so many of you here. Um, and this lecture uh, is co-hosted not only by um, the Power and Sydney Ideas, as has been around Sydney Ideas, as you all know, is the, um, uh, the sort of the Great Ideas Fest run by my colleague Meredith Hall, and I'd like to thank her for all the work she's put into creating this lecture and the whole series. And if you're interested in Sydney Ideas' sort of lineup of uh, distinguished visiting speakers, there's a sign-up list uh, in the foyer and uh, plenty of flyers. But tonight we're also collaborating with our colleagues at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and we're delighted to be doing so, who are, of course, uh, uh, revving up for the uh, Francis Bacon Five Decades retrospective, which is uh, going to be the great summer blockbuster this, uh, this summer, and about which you will be able to see a bit more if you have a little brochure on your seat. There's a little public programs brochure going around. And in a second, I'm going to... Um, uh, give way to uh, Tony Bond, the uh, curator of the show, to say a, a little more about that show. Um, but I can't resist, and I'm sorry, groans from those of you that know me, there are a couple of plugs um, on for upcoming power events that I just must get in. Um, the first is that um, on the 30th of October, um, again with Sydney Ideas, we're presenting um, uh, a new piece of work commissioned by the power through a grant from the Copyright Agency um, Limited's Cultural Fund. Um, we uh, it's a short piece um, uh, by the poet Luke Davis, who's the winner, as you might know, of the inaugural Prime Minister's Award for Poetry recently, and he's um, created something based on his engagement with the art of Anne Jadell, and that's on 30th of October here on campus. And um, the other big event we have coming up um, in the, later in the spring is our Symposium, The Legacies of Bernard Smith, and again, a three-way collaboration, this time with the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the University of Melbourne, gasp, and um, we've, the, we had this, the Melbourne part in September, and there are two days, one day here on campus on Friday the 9th, one day of November, one day at the Art Gallery on Saturday the 10th. It's a free symposium, but you, we would ask you to register, please. All of the details of all of this are on the Power's website, and those of you that like to sign up to our Power newsletter, we promise you it functions, it exists, uh, please uh, drop your name off or your email um, on our website. Right, that's all the plug done. Now I'm going to hand over to um, my colleague Tony Bond, who is going to tell us a little about The Bacon Show, and then... Um, Come up, Tony. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rod. I'll be very brief on the show. I mean, the, it's great to be doing it here with you, Mark, and the power. We've had a long history of collaborating on these kind of events. Uh, and it's particularly great because um, I was able to inveigle Liz to come out and talk about bacon, which she hadn't done, actually. So um, that's really exciting because it's new material. But Mark's going to actually introduce this properly. 
Um, but I, I really want to thank you for actually making yourself available to do this, particularly now, um, before the exhibition opens and before all you lot go off on holidays, um, because I've really been trying to connect with the academic community um, before um, everyone sort of goes into sort of the beach or whatever they do. Because our exhibition, because it's funded by Destinations New South Wales, has to be over the holiday, the summer holiday. We're working on that. Um, but it, it does mean that um, something really important for most students is going to be gone by the time you know, you're gone. So uh, it's an opportunity to alert you to this. Um, and hopefully you've found one of these, because this is the first of the events of a long series of programs that will run throughout the exhibition that Josephine Tumor has put together in our public programs department, um, uh, which is pretty lively. Uh, something every Wednesday night. You know, it's a symposium at the end. There's a forum at the Saturday after the opening. Um, so it opens to the public on the 17th, Saturday, and there will be talks then at the gallery and so on. I won't go into all that. What we've been able to do um, is to make um, a retrospective of Francis Bacon's work that really, apart from one painting from 1933, tries to explore the kind of centre of gravity for his work within each of the five decades after that. Um, and you'll see, I think, unlike any retrospective that's been done before of his work, that actually each decade does present new subject matter and sometimes a completely new way of putting paint on. Uh, and putting paint on is what we're interested in Bacon for in a way, as well as what he does to space, bodies, fragmentation, doubling, all of these strange things that go on. So um, we've been able to put together 53 major works, including I think five of the, the big triptychs and several of the small um, life-size sort of portrait triptychs, um, works that cover each decade quite thoroughly and, and quite explicitly, I think. So, um, and there's a film program that runs with it as well, which I think is really interesting. I did ask Robert Herbert, if you could think about the claustrophobia and sexual repression of Britain in the 50s and move on. So I said, let's start with the victim, you know, and the servant and things like that. And he said, what about the room at the top? And I said, oh yeah, Simon Signore, of course. But anyway, so he's done this great program and, uh, and I think it will be atmospheric and, and sort of relate to the kind of world that Bacon was working in, struggling in, uh, you know, on the one hand, he was a lifelong asthmatic, was <gasps> gasping for breath, which might have something to do with the screen. Um, but also, I think, you know, somebody who uh, struggled with his, his uh, sexuality in that society at a time, most of his life, uh, when it was actually illegal to be homosexual in Britain, which is why he spent a lot of time in Tangier. Anyway, um, I'm going to move on, uh, because, Mark, you've got some words to say about Liz. Thank you very much for having us here. Thanks, Tony. And now to the great pleasure of tonight introducing uh, Liz Gross. Um, Professor Elizabeth Gross is Jean, or the recently appointed, I should say, Jean Fox Obar Women's Studies Professor at the Trinity College of Arts and Sciences at Duke University. Um, a preeminent feminist scholar and theorist, one of the really most influential of theorists of the body and gender of our times. She's a friend and colleague to several of you in the room tonight, and her career has taken her from Sydney, where she took her PhD in philosophy, to visiting professorships at Harvard, Johns Hopkins, University of California, and uh, a long spell at Rutgers, and now um, to her chair at Duke. 
She's the author of a long catalogue, which I won't enumerate, of much-cited works from the early um, works, Sexual Subversions, Three French Feminists, which known to many of you, the amazingly still incredibly useful and pertinent Jacques Lacan, a feminist introduction of 1990, to a body of work in the mid-90s, which really cemented her reputation as an innovative and sophisticated thinker on the body, volatile bodies towards a corporeal feminism of 94, being the perhaps the, the, the sort of the, the star of that, of that particular moment. And her great bet on the body as the driver of humanity's thought was definitely a bet she won. Um, but she's also been a great champion of complex philosophical interrogation of, for example, of the concepts of evolution, uh, especially um, uh, more recently, from the nick of time and time travels in 2004 and 5 to the very recent Becoming Undone, Darwinian Reflections on Life, Politics and Art. And interestingly, that book is one of the two which reflect or actually have the concept of art in the title. The other one, of course, being Chaos, Territory, Art, Deleuze and the Framing of the Earth in 2008, which has, as many of you will know, an engagement with Western desert painting as part of its brief. And it's to Deleuze and to art that she's returning tonight. And... Um, in an interview in 2005, I'm probably going to embarrass her by saying this, Professor uh, Gross claimed provocatively that art isn't primarily or solely conceptual. What it represents is the most animal part of us rather than the most human part of us. Frankly, I find that refreshing in a way that it's not man's nobility that produces art, but man's animality that produces art. And that's what makes it of potential interest everywhere. The idea of uh, art as a fundamental human impulse um, rather than, if you like, post-enlightenment luxury, is, of course, a crucial and enabling one for all of us who study it and work on it and advocate for it. And Francis Bacon, of course, was very much engaged in an exploration of carnality and animality in his own way. But tonight, um, Elizabeth's going to take a different tack, I think, and explore Bacon and Deleuze's engagement with what she calls imperceptible forces. Her talk tonight is entitled Bacon, Deleuze and Imperceptible Forces. Please welcome Liz Gross. Thank you so much. I, uh, I don't know if anyone can, everyone can hear me. I guess this is better. Thank you so much, Mark, Tony, Josephine, the Power Institute, the Art Gallery. I'm really excited about talking for the Art Gallery. This is my first time. I was actually a student of Bernard Smith's long, long ago, a long, long time ago, so it's kind of weird to come boomeranging back talking about art. He didn't have much faith in my theories about art at the time. So... Uh, it really is great to be here. Thank you, everyone, for coming to this incredibly vertiginous lecture theatre. I hope you'll stay and sense the, the aura of the room as I talk about sensation. Okay. Um, Jill Deleuze's work has become increasingly influential in the world of art theory, criticism, and practice. Significantly, though, he undertakes neither art criticism nor history, neither aesthetics nor evaluation, but something quite different an exploration of what art and philosophy share, their common relations to chaos, and their various attempts to slow down and harness its forces. So here I want to explore the intense relations between Deleuze and Francis Bacon, a relationship that entered public attention with Deleuze's publication of The Logic of Sensation in 1981. And this relation was reinvigorated with its translation into English in 2004. Now, Deleuze and Bacon uh, may have been drawn together because of their mutual fascination with forces 
especially forces that are normally incapable of being perceived directly, but that may sometimes be conceived through concepts in philosophy or perceived through affects and sensations in art. Both Deleuze and Bacon are attracted to the disrupting forces of the universe that art and philosophy at their best are able to momentarily touch and represent. Both are concerned with how to slow down chaos and contain it enough to produce something new, a new concept or a new sensation, a new fact, as Bacon puts it, something distilled from the overload of forces that comprise chaos, something that produces a balance between tension and collapse, between the forces of chaos and the forces of the body. Now, as I was writing this, this is the strangest paper I've ever written, I was trying to sort of incarnate Bacon, sort of, I was trying to feel this paper, and as a result, I have these parts that aren't really parts, because when you write something that you feel instead of something you think, you can add parts to give the delusion of order, but there isn't really an order. I'm going to mention the parts just to give everyone, me particularly, the sense of security that there is a cohesion here. <laughs> So part one, bodies and forces. Both Bacon and Deleuze ask what forces make something what it is and what forces contort, stretch and twist, open up and transform it into something else, revealing what it always was, a complexity beyond self-evidence. They ask what induces becomings or transformations, what induces new living forces, how can we experience this directly through the impacts on the nervous system without the mediation of the brain? How can we feel these forces and give ourselves up to them? How can we paint a head, a body, while invoking all those forces that make them more than themselves? Bacon subjects the body to the forces that both make it, but also, most interestingly, that unmake it. Bacon asks how to think the fact of the body so paint directs this fact to the nervous system without the mediation of the brain, without overly conceptualising it. How to paint the body at the point of its becoming something else. He asks, how can one as an artist submit oneself to the forces that one must conjure up but cannot articulate? How to bring oneself into a rhythm with what cannot be perceived? To what energetic, energetic economy must the painter, the writer, the musician submit themselves in order to produce, in order to become different enough to perceive, even dimly, these unrepresentable forces? So Deleuze and Bacon share a fascination with those forces emanating from inside and deforming from outside living bodies, human bodies, heads, torsos, but also animal bodies, both living and dead. Meat, the interaction of forces that mate, make meat and tissue more than themselves, but also that insist on this as one of the irreducible dimensions of every body. Ah, it's a miracle. <laughs> Deleuze enables something unseen to emerge from the work of Bacon. And Bacon enables us to see something in Deleuze's philosophical work that resonates with his own, that connects the two without too overwhelming a story, 
that is, allows the work of each to be itself outside the other, but also for a rhythm to be produced between them. What each of Deleuze and Bacon bring out in the other is their focus, not on subjects and objects, not on figures and backgrounds, not on identities and narratives, which is the usual material of philosophy and art, but on impersonal and imperceptible forces. They focus on the forces of the universe that underlie and complicate all pretensions to being, identity, self-knowledge, and connection with the other. No one has perhaps focused as intently on these invisible forces as Bacon, whose figures are formed and deformed by forces that are unseen, but capable of being visualized somehow with great effort. The trick of art, the trick of art, is to somehow make something, paint something, that cannot be addressed in any other way. And this is what all of the arts attempt to do, to make invisible, imperceptible forces visible, to render them materially and representationally, to find a way to express them. Deleuze understands that of all the arts, sorry, that all of the arts have a common problem or theme. For each of them, it is a matter of representing in its own way what cannot be usually perceived. How to capture forces that one cannot usually see in paint and that one cannot usually hear in music. This is what all of the arts attempt to do, to expand themselves and their resources to reach out to this unknown and unlivable power that constitutes reality. They ask how to participate in these forces without descending into chaos, without abandoning qualities, colours, form and texture altogether. As Bacon himself affirms, and by the way, he was like just about the most articulate painter ever, he says, the most important thing is to look at the painting to read the poetry or to listen to the music, not in order to understand or know it, but to feel something. So the question is how to feel something without necessarily understanding it. Now Bacon aims to make paintings that are real, that is, that follow the realism of objects, that present facts, that is, that act on and affect living beings rather than any narrational or constructed realism. He says, when I see grass, I sometimes want to pull up a clump and simply plant it on the canvas. But of course that wouldn't work, and we need to invent the techniques by which reality can be conveyed to our nervous system without losing the objectivity of the thing portrayed. It's a really interesting idea, how to grab something real and put it in the painting, not as itself, but as paint. So the real here is not so much perceptible as reconstructed from the deformations and transformations of objects which outline the forces that they bear. This is the fact itself. The brain cannot be trusted. We don't know what happens to images once they enter the brain to mix with all of the images that are already there, photographs, advertising, cinema. The brain normalizes. It renders coherent and finalizes what is in the process of becoming. The brain, in other words, this is for Bacon, is the central storehouse for cliches, for illustrations, and above all, for narratives. He says, 
You never know what effect an image has on you. Images enter your brain and then you just don't know how they are assimilated or absorbed. They're transformed, but you don't know exactly how. <clears throat> so abandoning illustration, narrative, or decoration, and this is interesting because he spent about three years as a decorator, so he's quite scathing about the idea of art as decoration. He seeks out instead the force in things, in objects, in living beings, in bodies that confront the forces of the universe, forces that are capable of deforming as well as forming things. <coughs> Bacon's figures, Deleuze suggests, are usually solitary or in pairs, though not always. Sometimes more rarely, they're in groups. But in any case, each figure is like, and I quote Deleuze here, an intergalactic traveller immobilised in his capsule. Whoops. There. An intergalactic traveller immobilised immobilized in his capsule, being confronted by the forces of the cosmos, removed from any backstory and isolated from any milieu. The flattened backgrounds, the wiped parts of the face and body, are the ways in which the force encounters the body to render it immobilised, stuck in its movement, whipped by forces that stick, that now speak or represent instead of the body. Of all of the painters of the 20th century, Bacon is the most philosophical, the most conceptual, <clears throat> the one for whom abstract philosophical concepts come to life in art. Both Bacon and Deleuze think that Nietzsche in his elliptical way, has said it all. That the world is nothing but competing forces or wills to power. Everything organic and everything material, all the ingredients that make up each thing, are nothing but relations of force or wills to power, whose provisional alignment makes all things, including living beings, possible. The universe, in other words, is a sea of wills, wills to command and to obey, wills that are active and reactive. Matter, in this understanding, this is Nietzsche, has thus a kind of life, a kind of will, or many wills, that make matter an agent, or rather, that make matter many agents. These forces make up everything, every process, every action, every event in the universe. Living beings are not exempt from this understanding, for they too are made up of competing wills to power, wills that constitute each organ and each cell within a living body. Now Deleuze, in the wake of Nietzsche, is perhaps the greatest philosopher of forces in the plural, and he's very explicitly Nietzschean. He understands that the three great arenas of human thinking, art, philosophy, and science, perhaps we can see these as a triptych, these come only through forces, the imperceptible and unlivable forces of the universe, acting on living bodies and making them think. Thinking operates, in other words, in percepts and affects for the arts, in concepts for philosophy and in formula for the sciences. We are forced to think. And we all know this, it's really hard. Thinking never comes easily. We can articulate cliches very easily, but thinking is extremely difficult. Bergson was the guy who said that if one is really lucky, one has one thought one, one's whole life. 
that we're forced to think, unlike the flow of images, which constitute a kind of anti-thought. To think in its various forms, whether affectively or conceptually, whether in paint or in words, is to wrench something from the teeming chaos of the world. To do so, we must create a space for ourselves, a virtual space in which to enable forces and chaos to be temporarily contained, that is framed and made to have an effect in a particular way. We can understand chaos, perhaps, as the plurality of all forces, not without order, but with a multitude of orders, each vying for and altering the others. Painting frames chaos to extract from it affects, sensations, chaotic forces framed and contained, which nonetheless still carry a little chaos with them. As Deleuze says, and I quote, painting's eternal object is this, to paint forces. So art and philosophy are struggles to express these forces and to make them resonate and affect us directly. As Bacon says, after all, if you could explain it, why would you go to the trouble of painting it? These forces, <clears throat> perceptible and imperceptible, that Deleuze understands makes up the universe and that Bacon aims to make perceptible, not just visible, but felt and heard. So for him, he wants to paint a scream, like not a mouth, but a scream. Okay, it's a fascinating idea. How do you paint a scream which you can only hear? So what Bacon and Deleuze share is a fascination with these forces that bind living things, whether they're alive or dead meat, to, not, to the non-living, that give a certain life to non-livable forces. Bacon and Deleuze share a concern with forces, that is, with how relations and events move, with understanding what animates and makes the movement of things and events possible. Though, of course, they are very different in how they address these forces, the forces of life, but also the forces that impinge both by chance and by necessity. And these, of course, are philosophical questions as much as they are artistic and scientific. So the painter asks, how can I make qualities like colour or texture into sensations? How can I make qualities express? Not express a subjectivity or an interiority, which is the traditional understanding of expressionism, but how to make qualities express the forces that comprise them. This is not abstractionism either. These are the two traditions against which Bacon sets himself up. In abstractionism, one of the artistic solutions to the problem of the subject is an immersion in the qualities and rhythms abstracted from things and disembodied. Between them is the concept of the figure. And Bacon's art and Deleuze's philosophy both emphasize what runs through subjects and objects, through intentions and extensions, the lines of force that each crystallize. For Bacon, Art needs to address what nothing else can, questions of form, colour and figure. Art is the transposition into paint of the forces at work in the world. Art is the taking of qualities, texture, shape, density, or rhythm, sound, harmony, dissonance, 
qualities that art frames and moves, thereby expressing the world or a part of it, expressing something of the chaos from which matter comes. Qualities in here in the world, they are the imminent condition for art's expression, not because art expresses a subject or a viewer, but because art expresses imminence, the force imminent in the world. Deleuze sees in Bacon the artist who most directly addresses the forces of destabilization that convert a body to its most elementary ingredients, that show the body confronting the forces that make it into meat and bone, falling and sliding, slipping and twisting the body into its raw ingredients. He's interested in the violence that Bacon performs, not a violence to the figure, not a violence depicted or represented, because that would involve a narrative, but a violence towards line and colour, intensifying them, a violence of sensation, a violence that screams and that makes us want to see, but above all feel and hear it. Bacon himself denies that his paintings are violent. He says it is life that is violent. By the way, that's really profoundly true. Part two. Sensations and intensities. For Deleuze, art is the composition of qualities that compose sensation. Sensation is what each art generates, and these particular sensations can be generated only in that unique way. These are not sensations of a subject. In other words, these are not feelings or emotions, but sensation or affect in itself, sensation in and from the artwork. This is a really hard idea to um, understand because most of us think of sensation as what we feel. But Deleuze is interested in the question where we feel it from. Okay, it comes from the artwork. It doesn't come from us. We wouldn't feel it if the artwork wasn't there. It's the impact of the artwork on us. Sensation is opposed to two extremes. On the one hand, it's opposed to the cliché or the ready-made the pre-existent image. And on the other hand, the sensational, or the story, the illustration. Art is sensation, or rather art is qualities that have passed into sensation, which now have a force that lives autonomously. <coughs> sensation is not what a subject perceives in an object, including a work of art. It is not something that requires interpretation, which is another form of story. Rather, sensation in his in the work of art when creating the figure produces something new, new materials, new affects, new forces, the action of invisible forces on a living body in a form that stands alone and that no longer relies on its creator. An artwork is that which doesn't need me who made it. Okay, otherwise, it isn't an artwork. If it needs me, its creator, it falls. It falls alone. So sensations join the forces of the artwork with the forces of the universe. Sensation, in other words, lives in the artwork, in Bacon's portraits, in the land and seascapes, in the figures named and anonymous, in the deformations that even his own face undergoes as it ceases to be flesh and blood and becomes paint the undoing of his head by the forces that move through it. Sensation makes matter more than itself. 
and gives it an excess that only art can produce. The painted head is always different to the head itself. It has an added dimension. It has a force that persists even with the death of the subject. It exists in eternity, not something that needs anything else to live. The figure is not put into a situation of extraordinary violence, but rather is put into an everyday situation, an everyday discomfort that forces flesh to express something new about itself, its capacity to fall apart, to take on other forms, to induce other qualities, something other than mastery. Bacon produces a body or couples of bodies beyond control, caught in a constrained world. This is what Deleuze says, and this is a quote from Deleuze. He says, what fascinates Bacon is not a movement, but its effects on an immobile body, heads whipped by wind, deformed by an aspiration. He aims to make a spasm visible. In other words, Bacon makes the body spill out from itself, expelling itself, disgorging itself through some point, an umbrella, a bird, a mouth, a leg, a mirror, a shadow, through some encounter with an unseeable force. The body escapes through its own mouth. It screams itself, compressing and twisting itself, half melting away, all while being whipped by forces that can be felt but not known. The figure is forced to move from being a body to becoming what Artaud calls a body without organs a body that functions through levels of intensity rather than who, through hierarchies of organ, a body completely living yet non-organic. This is the body no longer organised by organs but by sensations, a body that makes the organism take on an excessive and spasmodic appearance, exceeding the bounds of, of organic activity. This body without organs, the body that runs beneath organized, the organised and organic body, is not a body free from organs, but a body dominated by an indeterminable organ, which reorients all the other organs, producing a new orientation, a new style of walking, a new manner of turning, a new kind of body. What Bacon produces is a body about to come apart, to spill its boundaries, through giving way to the forces that constitute it, a figure on the verge of expelling itself in the process of its own disfigurement, a figure outside the figurative now reaching beyond itself to those forces that it cannot contain. This is true from the very beginning of his work here. On to his later work, where figures can't help spilling their boundaries and pouring themselves outside, capturing their own forces as they dissolve. The body is made of forces, the forces of organs, of orifices, of libidinal circulation, but also of cells, blood flow, bones, muscle. Bacon aims to make these forces resonate with the intensity of the forces that are outside the body, both within fields of colour that contain the figure and from a parapet or a stage, a railing or a border that many of his works address. It's an uncanny painting, isn't it? 
So how do these forces interact? What happens to a body that is transformed by its encounters with forces that are outside of it? This is the accident, the encounter that Bacon tries to produce through chance, particularly when he throws paint, smearing it, transforming the work of art with the forces that the artist and the spectator don't control. The figures encountering these forces need not be human. Um, I think some of his most interesting work are his animal studies. But there must be encounters of the body with action, with movements and forces, an interest that makes even the landscape resonate with the potential for deformation and transformation. Only in a few of the works, landscapes, they're not really landscapes, but landscapes, does he explore pure forces themselves, forces passing, pushing beyond the human figure, forces that want to deform only themselves. This may be why, of all the paintings he despised, he was very, very critical of his own work and destroyed a good deal of it. One of the few paintings that he loved was a painting of the sea, where the figure is not entirely dissolved, but enters a process of its own undoing, as it is swamped with the blue agitation and the force of the sea, a sea also framed by a landscape, striated by a block-like beach and a looming horizon. The figure is in the process of merging with the sea and its rhythmical movements. Here the body is on the verge of disappearing, taken up entirely by outside forces, and the image is less and less constrained, and the sea itself is the active force that absorbs the figure. The figure is disappearing, becoming wave, becoming sea. He loved this, uh, not this one, this one. With, by 1988, with the jet of water, the figure covered by a, a water spray is the pure force of water itself. Deleuze sees here a new movement in Bacon, a movement to an abstraction that nevertheless remains concrete, a still linked to the trace of a figure. This brings to part three, and I think it's appropriate that at part three I begin to talk about a triptych. And in fact, I've been talking about them all along. We'll see how. The relations between the figure and the forces that infuse and surround it often stretch beyond the frame of a single painting. Bacon's triptychs serve the dual purpose of breaking down any narrative form while constituting some form of actual movement between panels through the creation of series, paintings that return with great force to variations of a theme, heads represented at different moments and under different forces, athletic figures constrained in closed spaces and slowing the forces of time, figures mirrored and reduplicated, one of the clearest and most direct ways to represent movement through what remains still. The tripartite form enables Bacon to represent more than one figure or several figures in an order or in various random orders with variations that bring out quieter but no less forceful movements than figures that are actually wrenched apart. They approximate an order or a direction without requiring a story to hold together the parts. <clears throat> they generate something that many of Bacon's other paintings address, 
but perhaps without as much focus. While all of his works address sensations, qualities and movements, that is the power of forces, Deleuze suggests that in the, that in the triptychs, Bacon is also able to represent something more directly of interest, rhythm, something the universe inhe that, that inheres in the universe that is very difficult to perceive, rhythm, the resonance of forces together, including the most intangible of forces, the rhythms of temporality. In the triptychs, Bacon's art becomes more musical without, however, becoming lyrical. This is a quote from Deleuze. Bacon makes the triptych equivalent to the movement or parts of a piece of music. The triptych would be the distribution of the three basic rhythms, one from each panel. There's a circular organisation in the triptych rather than a linear one. With the triptych, finally, rhythm takes on an extraordinary amplitude in a forced movement that gives it autonomy and produces in us the impression of time. The limits of sensation are broken, exceeding in all directions. The figures are lifted up or thrown in the air, placed upon aerial riggings from which they suddenly fall. These are figures not absorbed by their surrounding forces but amplified by them, resonating with them, even at the cost of their own dissolution. They form a circuit, more than a line. They address something that moves, a torsion, as it encounters a body. Bacon suggests that the series could in principle go on indefinitely, but there is something about three that distills the figure. I see images in series, Bacon claims, and I suppose I could go beyond the triptych and do five or six together, but I still find that the triptych is a more balanced unit. never seen it that colour. I thought it was orange. <coughs> I guess I'll have to see it in the flesh and find out. These paintings enable movement to be depict, depicted directly. These three faces of change, three orientations and energies, three forms of bodily engagement. In other words, in, sorry, in other works, like this one, he manages to place three figures together, or sometimes four. There's one mirrored in this particular case, not serially, but simultaneously, related to each other by forces, and particularly, as Deleuze remarks, by the force of the fall. All tension, he suggests, Deleuze suggests, is experienced in a fall. Bodies falling. The fall is an active descent. Here the fall becomes an action rather than passive. Bacon makes active and passive rhythms emerge in a circular movement without a line or a story, without any clear relation between them except they're falling and twisting. These figures are in movement, even as they remain perfectly still. There is movement between the figures, and the movement is stronger and more forceful than the figures, leaping across the panels in the triptychs, connecting them to a single field. Their falling confirms and enacts this. Bodies are at rest in Bacon's work. They are moved by forces outside of them that also summon up something within, a kind of crumpling or collapse. The streak, the smear or the twist submits the figure to a deformation from outside that also transforms it from within. 
while the railing or the confining space or coloured field constrains it internally as well as externally. These are bodies contained in their worlds, unable to move beyond themselves, weighed down by what and where they are. The triptychs, even more strongly than the single works, generate the force of time, the representation of stilled movement, the movement that comes not from figures but from their outside. These paintings come as close as painting can to represent time's active force, the forces that undo and redo every figure. This is why Deleuze finds himself describing Bacon as musical, for music is in itself temporal, while painting must invent a way for the forces of temporality to acquire that mode of depiction. Bacon invents the triptych, or reinvents it, so that rhythm, pacing, timing, and movement, qualities that are more musical than painterly, come into painted form. He paints not time itself, which is incapable of representation. Time is the very possibility of all representation. He paints instead time's force on bodies. There is nothing cinematic about the three figures and their relation. One does not pass through the speed of the projector onto the other. Rather, each depicts here and now something of the indeterminate force by which a figure is thereby transformed. Here, I'll put his head on. The triptychs form a movement without depicting it. Now, perhaps we can creatively understand Deleuze and Bacon as themselves akin to two figures that Bacon combines or keeps apart in the triptychs. Two different figures, two different rhythms, mediated by a third figure that enables something to flow between the two. The triptychs commonly bring together two figures in various states of torsion and transformation. If Bacon occupies one of the panels, Deleuze perhaps could be seen to occupy another. But between them, however, is a third panel. Let me go back. A third panel, which is often marked by an attendant who is not outside, but remains part of the figure. As Deleuze says, in many cases of Deleuze's painting, there seemed to subsist, distinct from the figure, a kind of spectator, a voyeur, a photograph, a passerby, an attendant, which is not a spectator, but a part of the figure. Often, but not always in the middle, this attendant, this observer, is commonly obscured or directed elsewhere than towards the two panels. And that figure is often a tangle, um, which makes the creation of a narrative or logic to link the two figures impossible. So it's a kind of anti-figure, a figure bursting out of itself to connect while also separating the other two images. In Bacon's work, this figure often functions as a demon, a marker, a shadow, a force that keeps two panels from collapsing together or from being thought too far apart. There is a companion. Sometimes Deleuze describes this as the dark precursor. It's the best phrase ever, isn't it? The dark precursor that accompanies the movement from the known to the unknown. Let me go back to Bacon's heads. These two heads on the right and the left constitute a matter of fact, a shared force, a concern that allows them to be placed together, but without a narrative linking them. The panels are each separate, 
Each figure is surrounded by an armature. This is true of the earlier ones too, a color field. Each um, painting is framed separately under glass, so it's very difficult to see them directly. What they share in common is a self-regulation of forces and economy so that their explosive potentials are carefully contained within artistic and conceptual frames. Now, if we can understand Deleuze and Bacon as making up two of these panels, and the third panel is filled with an observer, an attendant or a participant, perhaps even a demon, who doesn't engage in the same way as the other two, but accompanies the other two panels, then perhaps it could be our good fortune to be momentarily positioned there between Bacon and Deleuze as those observers who not only observe, but can also absorb and participate in their close encounters, and that can engage, even if briefly, in the intensification of forces that make us each the locus of transformation and becoming. Perhaps it is we, transformed into artistic personages or dark persona, that observe and accompany while being changed ourselves in the process. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. That was great. And I'm wondering whether uh, you'll be kind enough to answer a few questions, which are um, great. Now, the sequence is this. Sorry to bore you all, but stick your hand up. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Hand up clearly, and then someone will reach you with a microphone. Don't start to speak before that microphone is in front of your mouth, because otherwise... the Ah... Okay, so it's food or intellectual questions. Uh, I, I don't think we better go too far down. Okay, there will still be food at the end of questions. Um, uh, so, um, just... Uh, <laughs> if ever there was a spoiler, it was that one. Anyway, um, uh, if you'd like a, a few prompt questions for, uh, for Liz, can you stick your hand up, wait for a mic to arrive, and then uh, speak clearly into it. That would be really helpful. Thank you. Someone must. And don't There's 250 sure. people in this room. There must be a question. <laughs> Why did you have to stop? <laughs> <laughs> could, could you wait for a question? Even though you have a, a, a projecting voice, Paul, I just don't. It's coming. It's, got, it's on its way. Thanks for the talk, which I thought was, was great. Um, I'm interested in ways in which the, the triptychs particularly represent this idea of time. I mean, I know you've written on, on time. And Deleuze's version of time uh, seems often to have a, almost a kind of metaphysical resonance. I mean, a kind of essentialist quality which he associates with, with imminence and so on. Now, of course... Bacon himself, with the crucifixion you know, images, one could argue that temporality in him is not just about sort of dissolution and transformation, but also you know, the, the transposition of body into spirit or all kinds of weird forces which might resonate 
with um, uh, you know, what some people critically have termed the more kind of idealist side of Deleuzean philosophy. So I'm just wondering whether or not, uh, I mean, you clearly emphasized you know, the, the issue of dissolution and you know, the kind of secular process of transformation, but whether or not somebody sort of thinking about Deleuze and Bacon themselves as a kind of you know, part of a triptych might not kind of see them uh, you know, as sort of perhaps engaged in a kind of magic circle almost, you know, in thinking about ways in which these kinds of processes of, of transformation circulate? Okay, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> it would surprise me very much if the idea of transfiguration was part of the, the crucifixion in Bacon. Um, he has a decidedly kind of secular take and he's tried to explain why the crucifixion, because he likes the image. Um, a more complicated answer is something like this, that if we think about temporality, as you suggest, temporality cannot be understood as material, because it is the field within which material objects are presented, just as space can't really be understood as material, because that is the field within which objects are presented. So to paint time, I think is very difficult, and I don't think it's spirit that is at play in his work. I think it's ideality. Okay? It's the possibility of something being more than what it is, which I call, following Bergson, the virtual. So what I think Bacon is doing is painting the virtual forces that are in something, which could, in some people's interpretation, be spiritual, but which in mine you know, really wouldn't be. Be brave. Uh, then I'm going to look that way. Hi, Liz. Thank Hi. you. As a proponent of psychoanalytic feminism in the 70s, yeah. um, you know, which filled lecture theatres at this university, um, what model of uh, the unconscious would um, Deleuze's work in relation to Bacon, but also more generally, actually, um, what model of the unconscious uh, is operative uh, in, in this conception of uh, force, imperceptible forces of becoming imperceptible, capturing asignifying uh, particles? Okay, that's another... Semiotic. That's a, another tough question. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, these are the easy ones, obviously. Um, <laughs> The unconscious in Deleuze is a factory that produces things, okay? Like, it's a system that produces things. It's not an order that represents things. So I think in many ways Bacon's work really represents the idea of the Deleuzean unconscious brilliantly well. Because his work, and I think his whole life, was lived according to an economy where the production, the explosive production of that kind of work was all that really mattered in spite of whatever drunkenness and lechery occurred by night. Um, it, I tried to think about it this a lot when I was writing this paper. Not that I tried to reproduce it in any way, let me hastily add, but I thought about it a lot as a certain economy of his unconscious, which is the economy of his desire, but it's the economy and the logic that enables the forces of the body to produce something, which is very difficult to do. Um, you know how when you're supposed to write something, you start cleaning the house? 
Um, it's about a libidinal preparation to work, if you're lucky. Otherwise, you'd just get a clean house. But if you're lucky, it's about the libidinal preparation for making something. And I think if there's an unconscious at work, I mean, one could analyse him Freudianly, I'm sure. But in a Deleuzean mode, I think what one would have to look at is the libidinal forces that he harnesses and the other forces that he act actively harnesses in the creation of that work, which are aggressive, violent, they involve throwing, smearing, attacking in all kinds of ways. What factory of production has generated that and made it possible? That would be, I think, the Deleuzean way of asking that question. I don't know what the answer is entirely. Thank you. I'm going to try and be brave, um, simply because your answer to that previous question threw me off in a completely different direction. Oh, really? <laughs> so, so, yes, because while I was listening to your talk, I was quite squarely, or I thought you were quite squarely on the side of materiality. No. Right. Yes. So I think everyone thinks that. No, I'm not a materialist. Let me say that loud and proud. Well, I'm glad to get, get the chance to get you to clarify that, because so the forces that you're talking about are not the forces of... Um, the fluxes that are happening around in the cosmos and so forth and so they on. Are. They are those forces. Okay, well, over to you. Okay. Um, uh, this is sort of what I've been thinking recently, and I've been thinking about it a lot, and the more I think about it, the more it has to be some version of this, that materiality has to always already contain ideality for ideality to ever be possible. How can anyone think? How can anyone talk? without there being a dimension added to an object that enables it to be represented. I think these are the forces of the universe. Deleuze talks about something very interesting. Um, he talks not just about objects, he talks about events. And the thing about an event is that it it's, has an ideality that coheres it momentarily into an identity. Uh, today's weather is such an event. Okay? Now what makes it today's weather is not today's date, but the cohesion of all these temporary things that has an eternity about it. Like on this day, the 18th of October, for all eternity, this weather will have been. And that dimension of ideality is, I think, the possibility of materiality becoming art. I don't see how the art is possible unless something extra in the stuff you use to make it with is capable of resonating more than its materiality. I think this is Deleuze too, I don't think it's me. I think it's in him, I think that's why he's so interested in the Stoics, that's why he's interested in Spinoza. Is there another one maybe? <laughs> don't be shy. Maybe it's the smell of the food. I think there is actually another yeah. one. Yeah, the, the, the smell of the food. <laughs> it's other sensations it's taking over. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I guess it's a sort of half-formed question <laughs> at this point, actually. Um, I'm wondering, I guess, since the forces that you're speaking about um, are so grand, I guess, and so beyond the human, um, how conscious do you think Bacon is of being able to channel those sort of forces, or I guess I how much agency conscious. we can exercise? I, I think that. he's quite conscious of it. Um, how self-conscious, I don't know, but like he's certainly, for example, a really good reader of the history of philosophy, not only Nietzsche, but also Spinoza and the Stoics, the Greeks, Marcus Aurelius. I think he was quite self-conscious. I mean, look, he wasn't a Deleuzian. Uh, I was going to tell everyone, you know, that they had an encounter, uh, Bacon and Deleuze. They went to dinner. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, my God. And Deleuze brought an entourage, not Bacon. Bacon came alone. <laughs> um, they liked each other a real lot, but that would have been some doozy of an encounter, wouldn't it? But um, Bacon read the text and lo loved it and was much, much more philosophical than I think Deleuze thought he was. So I think he was quite conscious of the idea of summoning up something that is larger than him, that has to do with the materiality of the world, and that has to do with framing and containing it in some way, because there isn't a work of art that he's produced that doesn't have inside the frame another frame. Thank you. I, uh, well, if there aren't, then I just hope there are um, that uh, you will all have your appetites severely whetted for the uh, upcoming show, as well as for whatever the Law Society and John Howard will throw our way upstairs. Um, but um, I, I want to thank, before we go, I want to first of all thank you for coming. I want to thank all of our partners who made this possible. But most of all, I want to thank Liz for a fantastic lecture, and, and it will be podcast. Thank you very much.